there's a lot that's actually happening on the ground. People just getting together to care for each other and care for community. And I think we often miss that when we're just looking at how polarized the politics have been. And for me, permaculture is one of the places where people actually do connect across some of those barriers around, you know, our what we usually think of as our political orientation. Because we can just go back to saying, well, look, this is how we can care for the land. And this is how we can care for the community. And this is how we care for the future. Those are the core ethics of permaculture. And we all have a vested interest in that, no matter how we define ourselves or see ourselves. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. Today, I'm honored to continue the conversation about all things as it relates to our food procurement and the protection of our environments, as I'm joined by Starhawk. You heard from her directly when I showcased a moment from the Soil and Health Forum back in September in Petaluma, California. There, Starhawk spoke on her work in permaculture. She helped us understand the concept, talked through its definitions, and made sense of how and why regenerative farming, permaculture really, is our only path forward to feed this generation and all that follow. Let me just share her bio. Starhawk is an author, an activist, permaculture designer, and teacher. She's also a prominent voice in modern earth-based spirituality and ecofeminism. She's the author or co-author of 13 books, including The Spiral Dance, A Rebirth of the Ancient Religion of the Great Goddess, and the Ectopian novel, one of my favorites, The Fifth Sacred Thing, as well as its sequel, City of Refuge. Her most recent nonfiction book is The Empowerment Manual, a guide for collaborative groups or group dynamics, power, conflict, and communication. Starhawk also founded Earth Activist Training, teaching permaculture design grounded in spirituality with a focus on activism. She travels internationally, lecturing and teaching on earth-based spirituality, the tools of ritual, and the skills of activism. Starhawk, thank you so much for joining me today, and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Now, as I think the bio that I've just read helps detail, you really are at the forefront of a couple of concepts that have only grown over the course of the last 30 years since your release of the novel, The Fifth Sacred Thing. I'd love for you to share perhaps a snapshot of your journey, your advocacy for Mother Nature, and your important works of fiction and nonfiction. Tell us what really inspired you to undertake all of this. Well, you know, I grew up, I was an L.A. girl, Valley girl, right? <laughs> um, I always loved nature, craved nature, but I just remember, you know, there was one good climbing tree in the neighborhood. And every time my friends and I would climb up that tree, the woman who owned the place would come out and yell and scream at us to get down so that we, if we fell, we wouldn't sue her. You know? <laughs> Sounds like California. 
<laughs> yeah, I didn't have the kind of wonderful out in the country upbringing a lot of people have, but I'd longed for it. And I always found my own true spiritual experiences, my own moments of really feeling deep connection were with nature. When I was in my first year of university at UCLA in an anthropology class, I got to know some people who called themselves witches. And they started talking about being part of a pre-Christian, pre-Judaic, really earth-based kind of spiritual tradition that saw nature as sacred. And I went, oh, that's for me. <laughs> that's what I've always believed. And I began getting interested in that. And it was centered around seeing the deity, seeing the divine as the goddess. And I found that tremendously empowering as a young woman. Growing up Jewish, it had never really occurred to me that you could see God as female. And I found that to be tremendously empowering for me as a woman to think about spirituality that celebrated aspects of a woman's body, that celebrated sexuality, that empowered women instead of relegating women to serve a secondary role. Mm -hmm. So I got involved in writing about that. And my first book was The Spiral Dance. It came out in 1979, a rebirth of the ancient religion of the great goddess that talked about what a lot of us were doing, which was kind of trying to really recreate spiritual tradition that had empowered female center. And we saw it also as an aspect of feminism, that it was a feminist spirituality. It was about empowering women. You know, it wasn't really about seeing like a big lady in the sky that you bow down to. It was more about valuing those qualities that women represented of bringing life into the world and of life in this world and of nature as well. So I spent many years writing about that, teaching about that, and creating groups and organizations where we were practicing that and creating rituals and healing traditions. I also encountered in the 80s some friends of mine who'd taken a permaculture course. And permaculture is a system of ecological design that tries to look at the patterns of nature and mimic them so that we can meet our human needs while actually regenerating the environment around us instead of degenerating it. And I was fascinated by that and wanted to learn more and in the 90s, I connected up with Penny Livingston, who's an amazing permaculture designer and teacher. And we began teaching together and we founded Earth Activist Training. In 1999, there was a big blockade in Seattle against the World Trade Organization. And it brought a lot of activists together from all over the West Coast, really from all over the world. And Penny and I had both taken part in that action and talking about it afterwards, we felt like there was this, suddenly this whole new world of young activists that were out there, that were eager, that were dedicated, that were really smart. But a lot of them didn't seem to know what the actual solutions were. 
And there was also this whole world of permaculturalists and natural builders and agroecologists and people who had these tremendous solutions, but sometimes seemed a little naive about the power structures that were in the way of getting them realized. Mm -hmm. So I founded Earth Activist Training to teach permaculture with a focus on organizing and activism and a grounding in earth-based spirituality because we felt that personal sustainability and regeneration is a really vital part of not just growing crops and soil and plants, but growing the people who can grow the movements that can grow (laughs) the food and the soil and the plants and the regenerated ecosystem. Well, that sounds like an approach that is circular, right? Because it's including humans in the story. You know, one of the things that your talk at the Soil and Health Forum got me questioning and thinking about, which I didn't have the chance to connect with you on there, was, you know, really, what is the difference between these concepts? Or are they just the same, permaculture and regenerative organic agriculture? Well, I would say regenerative agriculture is like a big, broad tent that covers a lot of different things. And permaculture is maybe one particular movement or system in it that also incorporates a lot of other systems, other ideas. You know, the permaculture movement, for example, has made alliances with a lot of the holistic grazing and holistic management movement that comes out of Alan Savory's work around regenerating grasslands. He's, you know, the ways you can use livestock to rebuild carbon in the soil and bring desertified grasslands back to life. You know, permaculture has alliances with Paul Stamets around the mushroom work. It incorporates a lot of different things, but it is a particular way in to looking at those things. You know, it has a lot of alliances and similarities to agroecology. Agroecology found, you could say it's a different way of saying permaculture, but it also kind of ties you into a slightly different group of people. And I think the agroecology people tend to be more based in the university. Hmm. Permaculture people often tend to be outside of that a little bit, although we do like to incorporate sound science and research as much as we can. Permaculture also has drawn a lot of inspiration and influence from indigenous practices and traditional farming and land use practices. Now, something you mentioned just a bit ago, Alan Savory's work, I think he's Harkins from Australia, if I recall correctly. Actually from Africa, from Zimbabwe. Yeah. Okay. So thinking about his work, really trying to help people and the regenerative space understand that animals can be part of the solution. I know that some of his work has come under fire when specifically you're looking at the ability of the soil to sequester and store carbon. He talks about oxidation, which I think isn't as well accepted by what you might call those agroecologists, the people that are working from the university perspective. But there is a place, of course, for things like manure and animal dung to rebuild our soils. Recently seen that Sadhguru has taken on the mantle of wanting to talk about soil and soy health as being absolutely critical to this future that we face where 
We see topsoil erosion really impacting entire communities. We're going to essentially run out of topsoil and healthy soil if we don't do something dramatic about it and fast. So where do you see us today versus when you started this journey so many years ago now? Well, I think the understanding of the importance of soil and the, the regenerative approach has made inroads into the mainstream much more now than 20 years ago when I began or 30 years ago. Certain things like I remember in my first permaculture course, first hearing about biodiesel and <laughs> this radical idea, you know, you could run your car on vegetable oil. And now, you know, that's a much more accepted thing. And, you know, the city of San Francisco runs its buses on reclaimed vegetable oil from the restaurants. The airlines are trying to figure out how to use that to fly their airplanes. And that's good. In the permaculture world, we tend to be sort of edge species. You know, we're used to being on the margins. But to be successful, we really need these ideas to penetrate the mainstream. And now we have, in California, for example, we have a lot of good programs and grants that you can get for regenerative systems, including some of the grazing systems that Alan Savory developed. And his insight was to really see that grasslands actually need grazers mm -hmm. in order not to degenerate. And in pre-colonization like times, you know, you might have huge herds, say, of bison all over the Midwest, thousands of individuals in a herd, and they would move bunched together, and they would move on quickly when they had been in a place for a little while, because if you're a bison, you don't want to stand around and eat the grass that your fellow bison have pooped all over. <laughs> and they stayed close together because that was their protection because there were predators out there. There were wolves. And because of that, they would graze an area down quickly and then move on. And then the grass would have time to recover before they came back. And his insight was to see that overgrazing wasn't so much how many animals you had on the land. It was how much time the land had to recover between each bite from an animal. And that we could actually use livestock to mimic that kind of impact. And in doing so, we can bring back the health of the grasslands, which is vitally important because a lot of our soil loss in the world comes from marginal lands that are desertifying and are turning into deserts. So I think I've seen a direct example of this from my experience with horses, right? Uh, I've ridden horses off and on my whole life. I've owned them. I've worked on farms. I've helped to start cults and fillies and, and get them to a space where they can be productive members of the animal lover world, right? And often even rescued off the track thoroughbreds to help rehabilitate them from something that was probably not best for their livelihood, right? <laughs> so as it stands, there was this one beautiful piece of property in Oakdale, which is in Central Valley area near Mendocino, or Modesto, I should say, not Mendocino. And they also are in the floodplains of the Tuolumne River. And so they reclaimed this floodplain from, you know, these banks that had just, you know, covered in river rock by adding horse manure 
in stretches for a long period of time to the point where grasses started to thrive there. And then you have shrubs that also grow along the riverbanks, which offered a break to prevent, you know, all that soil from washing away. Mm-hmm. And so what happened over the course, you know, 15, 20 years that Connie Arthur was running the property is that they developed some of these most beautiful pastures, some of which were naturally irrigated by the slow flood of the Tuolumne during certain seasons and maintained herds of horses that were only fed really supplemental grain and some hay during the summer months when, you know, that grass would get a little bit too lean to sustain them. But she essentially changed the entire environment over this 100 acres or so to make it viable and also just feel like paradise to anybody who visits. You see the birds return, you see all sorts of critters and animals that are are just thriving in this environment. And as we know, when you have an ecology that is well managed, the biodiversity is really intense. You can feel like you're on a nature walk, just walking into a field. Whereas if we are to experience life in California on the central coast here and visit the strawberry fields, yeah, plastic sheeting and strawberries growing poked through them and then bare earth between everything. Yeah. And there's a big movement in agriculture toward no-till, which is to stop turning up the ground all the time, because when you do that, you expose all the soil organic carbon the humus, you know, that makes it fertile, uh, you expose that to the air and it oxidizes. It combines with oxygen and turns back into carbon dioxide and off gases. So there are researchers like Dr. Ratan Lal from the Soil Carbon Institute in Ohio who says, we have as much excess carbon in the atmosphere from the Dust Bowl in the 1930s as we do from every automobile ever invented. Well, I think you just explained it so much better than I've heard Alan Savory explain it because he refers to oxidation, but without talking about that part of the cycle, which I think then further confounds or confuses the issue. Well, there's also the oxidation that if you have grass and like where I live, my land is up in Sonoma County and it's a Mediterranean climate. We get lots and lots of rain in the winter. In fact, we're the rainiest spot in California, but we have these long dry summers So if the grass gets eaten down or trampled down, it can get in contact with the ground and it can be, it'll break down. Mm -hmm. But if it's just standing there up in the air, first year it'll kind of turn gold and it's still edible for animals. It's like hay, which is dry grass. But after the second year, it oxidizes, it turns gray and it's lost all its nutrition value. And it becomes a huge fire hazard. So we're looking at grazing and animal impact, both for regenerating the soil, for the yields of the animals, but also for reducing fire danger. Because most fires actually start in grasslands and then spread to the forest lands. Yeah, that's right. I abut a nature preserve and my the nature preserve is mandated to have grazers on it. It was once cattle dairy land, but then was donated to the state with the understanding that it would be used as a preserve for certain species that are somewhat threatened in the state of California. We have a beetle that hunts by sight, and so it needs grazers on the land. When I first moved into the property, when we bought it, there were 13 horses grazing in the field behind. And because I'm a horse lover, it was like that way they sold it as much as anything else, right? 
Now they've converted to cows because with long droughts, we have different species of grasses that are thriving and horses are kind of picky eaters, whereas the cows are a little less discriminate and will eat more of the varieties because they have that four chamber stomach, right? So as it stands, they rotate the cows from pasture to pasture to prevent overgrazing because overgrazing can kill that rootstock and then the grasses don't come back as strong the next year, right? And then also ensures that they're, you know, leaving their dung behind, the soil remains fertile, and they're part of this whole cycle. There's also a species of grass that's native to California that is part of that preserve and which needs grazers and the California salamander or newt forget which it's called. So all three are kind of protected on that property. So it's really refreshing to me to see this real life example every day as I go on my hikes around the neighborhood, but there's too few of these. So I think this is part of the problem. We hear from a populace that we just, well, how are we going to feed everybody? If we convert to this regenerative style of agriculture, we're not going to be able to have enough cattle grazing on that property or enough of this or enough of that you know, what would your answer be to these individuals who come first from skepticism, even without seeing the evidence? Well, I think even just today, there was an article in the Washington Post about somebody, a food writer writing about what she knows about food, saying how organic can't feed the world because the yields are down, you know, from conventional agriculture, and you have to go well, again, one of the things we learn in permaculture is I'd say if we say more than anything else is it depends that things are complex. There aren't really simplistic answers to natural systems because natural systems are complex. And so you say organic agriculture can't feed the world. You have to say, well, is conventional agriculture going to be able to continue to feed the world when it's destroying the soil? That is the basis of what we're using to get those inflated yields. And it's not so much about how do we just grow, you know, wheat and corn and rice on every scrap of land. You have to look at what is this land suited for? Mm -hmm. There's many, many places where you can graze animals that you couldn't possibly plow up and plant grain because you would simply destroy the place. It would erode away. It's far too steep. It's far too rugged. That's why we had the Dust Bowl in the 1930s because they were trying to grow corn and wheat on land that is marginally dry. And in the wet years, it could kind of work. But in the dry years, it just dried up and blew away when it was exposed to the air soil, whereas that same land had supported, again, like massive, massive herds of buffalo for tens of thousands of years that built soil and built fertility and built grasslands just by doing what buffalo do. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. And they didn't till the earth, that's for sure. <laughs> Not in the traditional sense. They almost more than anything for me. Both permaculture and earth-based spirituality are about shifting our way of thinking, you know, to understand that it's not about simple isolated solutions or simple isolated cause and effect. It's about looking at complex systems and understanding that things are interdependent and interconnected. And that's both a scientific principle, but it's also a very deep spiritual principle. And it's the same principle, I think, that 
indigenous elders of so many different traditions have been trying to tell us, you know, when they say we're like in the Lakota tradition, when they say homotakwayasin, they're saying all my relatives, all my relations, it's about our relationships. So when we design a permaculture system, we're not just saying I'm putting this rose here and this apple tree here. We're saying, how do I create a system that's going to provide for as many of its own needs as possible, that's going to generate some of the things that I need, but that's going to be building soil and resisting pests and creating beauty, Because if you do it right, it is beautiful all at the same time. Now, I know that from your experience um, living in this world of permaculture and of educating yourself around really just being respectful of life and earth first, you've even been called earth mother by publications or a pagan goddess. I just have this wonder in my heart and soul about how you see yourself. What do you call yourself? I once had a huge fight with my mother because I invited her to come to this Jewish feminist conference that I was speaking at. And she looked on the list of who was speaking and the bios and mine said, Starhawk is a nice Jewish girl who grew up to be a witch. (laughs) (laughs) And she was like, how could they say this about you? You know, everyone else is a doctor of this or you head of that, you know, I said, Mom, that's what I told them. <laughs> She's like, how could you tell them that? Why don't you list your credentials? <laughs> Do the traditional route. Yeah, I think that's kind of how I see myself. You know, I felt deeply connected to my ancestral tradition. And I think it was the even deeper spiritual roots. And I do my best to practice in very hands-on ways whether that's in advocating for environmental policies or for social justice, uh, whether that's running an organization that trains people in regenerative systems, whether that's taking action or uh, whether that's doing forestry work up where I live to help protect the community from wildfires. To me, all of it is very interconnected. You know, I was hoping that we could dive a bit into your fiction work with a fifth sacred thing, namely because I think that one of my best friends would never forgive me if I didn't ask you about the book. She had requested that I read the book years ago. She's like, I think you'll really like this. And her copy was tattered and had been circulated several times and probably even read in the bath and dropped in at a view. So the fact that my first encounter with your work happened about 15 years ago, um, before I had kids, and well after I was already on my own kind of, let's just say, uber liberal, uber eco-friendly journey. I was born on a hippie commune and grew up with a lot of these things, you know, percolating in my system, but then moved to California and I'm living in this tech giant area of Cupertino and Silicon Valley and really having conflict with it in my earlier life, right? to then come to a place where the only place I could feel that felt home in Northern California was Santa Cruz and going to UCSC, studying anthropology, much as you did, doing archaeology digs around the world and wondering about this past of humanity and what our lives might have been like. And I found that as I read your book, The Fifth Sacred Thing, 
that it caused me to consistently reflect back on not only my early life, but wondering what humanity was like before the handwritten recorded era. Um, thinking of the world that you depict when this book was published in the 90s of a future in 2048. Mm -hmm. Seemed a lot further away in the 90s. It doesn't. It seemed so far away. And now, <laughs> not so much. When I wrote that book, throughout the 80s, we had been doing a lot of nonviolent direct action around nuclear power and nuclear war and intervention in Central America. And I had been training people in nonviolence for many years, and, but also really wrestling with the question, especially would come up around Central America about how far can you take this? Like, could this really work in the context of people who are absolutely ruthless? And so that was the underlying question of that book. I'd also been doing a lot of historical research into the transition from the old matriarchal pre-Christian, pre-Judaic, you know, pre-what we call civilized cultures, which were earth-centered and much more goddess-centered and really centered around imagery of life and regeneration, and how that transitioned to patriarchy and top-down hierarchical systems and how much war was at the root of that. And so the question I was struggling with was, how can a peaceful culture defend itself and survive in the face of violence? And so in some ways that book is an attempt to explore that. You know, what would it look like? Could it work? What would it take to make that work? What if you had a culture that had decided they were not gonna defend themselves with weapons of war? Were there other options? Mm -hmm. Still a question I wrestle with. I think it becomes more and more vital with every passing day and every time you open up and read the news. Because in our culture, we have this very patriarchal definition of strength. We see strength as the ability to inflict harm and destruction. And the ability to control resources and extract maximum profit and yield from something. Things that actually take care of people, nurture people, nourish people are often seen as weakness. I mean, you can see that in the dialogue around almost any issue right now. It's around Gaza and Palestine. It's like if we stop bombing civilians and killing children, we'll look weak and I think there's a different definition of strength that I see that comes out of the feminist movement, but also out of earth-based spirituality and also in permaculture. Strength is important. It's helpful in permaculture. You want to be able to dig that ground and move those rocks, like whatever gender you are. But that strength goes into systems that are actually nurturing people, actually feeding people, actually regenerating soil and land. And when you see the kind of strength it takes to do that, it's actually, it takes a lot more strength to take a damaged piece of ground and bring it back to life and health than it does to pick up a gun and go into a crowded, you know, movie theater and shoot a whole bunch of people. That takes no strength at all, really. Well, and the recipe that has landed us there is one in which we don't have strong communities the way we did 100 years ago. People 
aren't raising children together as a larger family unit. We are units alone. I experience this myself. Part of this, I think, is part and parcel to the fact that women like myself that are professionals are having children a little later in life. And because I'm having a child later in life, my mother is not as likely to be able to help in the same way that she might have 20 years ago. Yeah. So the same family unit isn't raising our children anymore. And therefore, getting a little less of the nurturing grandmothering of our youth than we once did. And what are the common constructs that we have about women as grandmothers, right? We think about them as being a little more lenient, a little bit more patient, perhaps not cleaning up the messes the same way, but, you know, allowing a little bit of the rambunctiousness of youth to exist in a way that often the parents don't have the time or patience for. (laughs) And, you know, when I was a child, you went to school in the neighborhood school and actually came home for lunch because it was close and because there was someone home to cook lunch. And I mean, I totally support the feminist movement and getting women out of the home and into the working world all that. But it's also meant that we don't have those communities where women were around to connect and bond with each other. Yeah. And we say it takes a community to raise a child, but now it's a paid community. It's childcare. And that changes things. Commerce will change things. And We're in a different world than the one I grew up in and the one you grew up in. And that's only continuing kind of down that path. When I see things like the school shooter that you mentioned, you know, you always see after the fact, oh, well, you know, he was experiencing some psychological difficulties. Where did they take root? What was the problem? What, why didn't people identify earlier? How come their calls for help weren't really heard by the community? And I think this all kind of ties into the same thing. We're going bigger, better, faster, more. Everything's disposable. Move away from land and into technology. And, you know, bigger, better, faster, more doesn't mean better. And I think that's something you and I are in full agreement on. I want to point to a couple of things in your book, The Fifth Sacred Thing, that really stood out to me. And then just get your perspective from the world of today. One is that... It was in an exploration also of not only our experience of being like earth protectors versus those that might be more extractive or that are more extractive, but also from this cultural significance perspective, you shared a world in which some of the non-binary sexuality and relationships as being, you know, more broad were really explored where you covered topics like jealousy from what might be a more solo relationship versus something that was a little different and more what I might say is a little bit millennial in its perspective. So how do you see this book coming into today? Because it was recently also read as an audiobook, which I listened to and absolutely loved. I just feel the relevance is there. I want for younger listeners to hear from you about that kind of cultural perspective that's also brought it. Yeah, well, for me, it was a chance to explore all of that. And it's really nice to explore all those multiple relationships in fiction, because if they go wrong, it doesn't mess up your life the way it does when you explore them in real life. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, just looking at all the different possibilities and to say we don't need to be locked into this one mode of a heterosexual nuclear family. There are many ways to be 
there are many forms of sexuality that we might, if we really believed sexuality was sacred instead of having this suspicion that it's actually something nasty and sinful, <laughs> then we would be much more supportive of people exploring it and discovering it and finding multiple kinds of pathways and expressions for it. And I think younger people are intent on doing that. And we certainly were back in my generation, but we were coming out of a much more restricted place to begin with. And now uh, I don't know if they necessarily know it and give us credit for it, but they're coming out of a very different place and make some much wider kinds of explorations. I think it made me feel like your work was uh, prescient, you know, and even almost like you took a snapshot of today in the future somehow. And, you know, just thinking about things like how much we're talking about gender and non-binary or even just individuals who explore their sexuality and their being in different ways, which falls under fire and criticism from different political factions. And which to me, and I think you might be in the same camp here, is like, I don't see environmentalism as a politically charged issue. I also don't see sexuality as something that should be politically charged. And yet here we are. So many things that, you know, like public health shouldn't be politically charged. You know, every single thing in the world that should be common sense becomes politically charged. And it becomes very, very destructive in our current time. So yeah, I'm with you on that. So I wonder if, again, from this perspective of this futurist approach, do you think that we can, over the course of the next 25 years will take to land at 2048, come to some sort of uh, collaborative approach to just the protection of our futures as opposed to making all of this so polarized? Do you see a silver lining? Well, it is my hope that we will. And, you know, I think it's hard sometimes to hold on to that hope when you look around and see what's happening and you read the news. But then I come back and look around at things like in my own community out in Sonoma County, you know, out in the woods, um, people come together over COVID. We just started having work days in the woods every weekend in the winter when you can do work there and just getting together, thinning and pruning and limbing up and doing what we need to do to make our access roads safer in case of wildfire, tending the forests and People come out and nobody's asking what your politics are. Nobody's asking who you voted for. But people have a really common interest in caring for the land. And that has been happening all over the country in different places, in different communities. You know, there's a whole movement to bring back prescribed fire to the land and organizations all up and down the West Coast that have been doing that. There's a lot that's actually happening on the ground of people just getting together to care for each other and care for community. And I think we often miss that when we're just looking at how polarized the politics have been. And for me, permaculture is one of the places where people actually do connect across some of those barriers around, you know, our what we usually think of as our political orientation, because we can just go back to saying, well, look, this is how we can care for the land. And this is how we can care for the community. And this is how we care for the future. Those are the core ethics of permaculture. 
And we all have a vested interest in that, no matter how we define ourselves or see ourselves. Well, I think this is a perfect segue to talk about the courses that you're presently offering, because I personally want to know more about what I can do to be a good steward of the land around me and of the community that I'm a part of. So I'd love for you to talk about what people can expect from participation in your courses. I believe you have one coming up on November 15th as we're around then as we're recording this show and then another in January. So why don't you talk a bit about that and then really just share how you prefer people to connect with you. I know you have your website of starhawk.org and also another specific to the eco trainings called earthactivisttraining.org. I will include links with show notes, but just um, hear about the things that you're doing to help prepare the future generations. Well, Earth Activist Training teaches permaculture design certificate courses, which are, you know, they're sort of a globally recognized 72-hour course that teaches the basics of regenerative approaches to agriculture, to culture, to building, to all the things we need to do to sustain our lives and how to weave them into systems and put them all together in ways that make sense. We do them online, but we also have an upcoming in-person course, January 6th through 20th, out in Western Sonoma County, that I'll be co-teaching with Charles Williams, who's a really amazing permaculturalist and designer and practitioner. Um, And we'll have a later intensive in February, a shorter one, that's just hands-on focused on restorative and regenerative systems, focusing a lot on forestry and animals and maybe some stream restoration work. We also have long-term training program for people who have some background in permaculture and want to do a multi-year diploma program we call regenerative land management. And the idea is it's a mixture of online courses, in-person intensives, and internships and apprenticeships and mentoring that by the end of it, you could feel confident to take on a piece of land and manage it regeneratively and bring it back to health and life. And we do that in association with PINA, the Permaculture Institute of North America, so that you get a diploma at the end of it. And we also, we're going to have a one-time sort of ritual celebration called Seeds of a Brighter Future on November 17th that's celebrating some of the work we do. We've been giving diversity scholarships to people of color and indigenous folks for many, many years. And we do a lot of fundraising to help support that, but we really want to bring these skills and tools of regeneration to the frontline communities that are most struggling against environmental destruction and degradation. And that'll be November 17th from 5 p.m. Pacific time, 7, and we'll showcase a couple of the projects some of our students have done, and we'll do a seed blessing ritual. People don't often think about planting seeds in the winter, but there's a lot of seeds that actually need a period of cold in order to germinate. And certainly in our climate, There's a lot of cool weather seeds that do best in the winter when the rains come and flourish. So we're going to think about, you know, the times seem pretty dire right now. But if we can envision a brighter future, 
we can start to make that happen. Well, I don't think there's a more perfect note to end this on. I personally want to see that brighter future. And I love this idea of funding people to explore. These are very important topics. Now, if there are any other closing thoughts or perspectives you want to share with our audience about how they can care more to create this better future, I'd love to offer you the floor. I'll just say we've also done a project over the last two years of fundraising for a group of Afghan refugees who were doing permaculture and human rights work in Afghanistan before the Taliban took over. And we've been able to get them resettled, many of them in Portugal and Spain. We continue to raise funds around that. Next year, I'll be co-teaching a permaculture course in Galicia for some of the refugees and for other people who want to come and learn in that environment and support the work. We were able to help one of our students. The wonderful thing about doing things online is you can have students all over the world. And we have a student who's part of a community of Ugandan Jews that converted like 100 years ago. And um, we've helped them connect them up to people who've helped raise funds to get them water tanks and help get them some permaculture training. It's very satisfying to do work where you can actually see the results. You know, we have another student from the reserve at Standing Rock who's been doing tremendous work with the clinic there and with helping to design a school that's going to be teaching regenerative systems and be designed in a regenerative permaculture way. We co-teach at an eco-village in British Columbia called OUR Eco-Village on Vancouver Island. And we've had uh, several of our students have done design projects with the local Cowitson tribe there and have built food forests on the reserve. So for me, it's been a very satisfying counterbalance to all the years I've spent protesting against this and against that, which we have to keep doing, you know, but it's also very, very satisfying to actually be able to build things, create things, make things, grow things. And I think that's one of the great joys that permaculture offers is there's so many productive and creative and regenerative things to do and having the skills to do them is empowering to people. Well, I love that your platform provides them with an opportunity to gain those skills. And I want to thank you for your continued hard work in this arena. So many people at your stage in life might just say, okay, I'm done now, but obviously, (laughs) you know, you really are, it feels like in some ways you're just getting started. Like you have really, grounded yourself in this next stage, which is all about moving things into action. From that activist stripe, I mean, I'm an activist too. I want to protest as much as I'm sure you did and are in your own way now. And now wanting to move it to action, from activism to action and creating these regenerative systems. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. What an incredible treat to finally have the opportunity to speak to Starhawk and to ask her about her many perspectives as it relates to where we're headed as an entire species, as a planet, and as a part of nature. I will be sure to include links to where you can learn more about Starhawk and the great work that she's doing, including a listing of the schedule that she 
provided just in this interview and ways that you can get connected with her, including, of course, her website, starhawk.org, and also earthactivisttraining.org. Her courses on permaculture would be an absolute gift, I'm sure, to those of you that are interested in what it's going to take to rebuild our soils and our ecologies around the globe. Now, when you visit our website, caremorebebetter.com, you will find complete transcripts to this episode, as well as links and resources that you won't find anywhere else. I'll also include all the direct links to the programs that she mentioned. While visiting our website, I hope that you'll join our newsletter. Among other things, this will actually provide you with a five-step guide to help unleash your inner activist, organize your efforts, or even just operate as a project management tool. It was the creation of myself and another individual who worked together in graduate school getting our MBAs, and we thought, heck, why can't we go ahead and distill this into something that would be usable for every day. So that's exactly what it is. Now, while visiting, you sign up for the newsletter and you'll get that as your welcome gift. Now, I want to also just share one thought on closing. Each of us has the capacity to create change in our local communities. Each of us has the capacity to push back against the things that we don't agree with and to also be a part of the solution for today and tomorrow. Much of this is what you heard from Starhawk, moving from activism into action. So I hope that you'll also consider sharing this episode with your community so that they can hear these words of wisdom as well. And in so doing, if you might also leave us a review, a thumbs up, a five stars, just to help us reach more people. I want to thank you now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more. We can be better. We can even integrate these ideas of circularity, permaculture, and regeneration into our day-to-day lives, the future of food, and the future of how we live. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. 